The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. High-achieving people from all walks of life manage mental health challenges, and mental health issues pervade society at all levels. We talk a lot on the show about what business leaders can do and are doing to both fight stigma and improve mental health at work. Today, we're checking in on what political leaders are working towards, and a political leader who herself struggles with depression and anxiety. Becca Ballant is remarkably open about her struggles, and indeed, openness is one of her values as a leader. She says one of her goals while she's in Congress is to serve with openness and compassion. Representative Becca Ballant joined Congress earlier this year representing Vermont after serving in the Vermont Senate from 2015 to 2023. And she ran on a platform of, among other things, better access to mental health care, something that she's now fighting for as a member of the U.S. Congress. Congresswoman, it's great to have you. How are you doing today? How's, how's life in Washington? You know, I'm actually in a brief moment in Vermont today. Oh, so <laughs> life is good. <laughs> I, I've been doing work outside on my patio with my dog at my feet. And I am always grateful when I have time at home, even if I need to do work. It's lovely to be in Vermont. What a great role model for flexible work. So I love it. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're a new member of Congress. I'm curious what the biggest adjustment in your management of your emotional and mental health you've had to make as becoming a congresswoman at the federal level in Washington, D.C., sort of leaving Vermont? The biggest adjustment for me has been that my time and my schedule is often not my own. Mm. And I'm used to having really long days. I was a teacher for many years. You come home with your grading and prep that you need to do. And you have, you know, certainly a lot of demands on your time. And then I came up through the Vermont legislature and actually ran the Senate in Vermont. And so I'm used to long days. What I wasn't prepared for was that I would have people I have hired, right? My staff, (laughs) ostensibly people I like and trust, telling me almost to the minute where I need to be. Mm. And that is really hard if you're trying to take care of your mental health. And so the first three months were a major adjustment for me trying to figure out how will I get that time to sit quietly or in my case, to get outside. Yeah. That is a big, uh, it's a big important thing for me to do every single day in order to deal with my anxiety and my tendency towards depression is if I spend too much time inside, I can feel the darkness creeping in. Hmm. And, you know, I, I thought I'd share this with you. I had this revelation 
a few weeks ago that Congress is actually like a big ant farm. There are <laughs> thousands of people moving around every day and they're walking on these sort of worn paths, both above ground and underground. And um, you're part of a system, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't create the system and you're part of it and you have to figure out how you fit in. But the movement never stops in much the same way that it doesn't in an ant farm, right? Everybody is always in motion. And I had to figure out when I step out of the line, so to speak. <laughs> and I am getting better at that. And I think my staff is getting better at understanding what that means for me and, and what I need to reset. Has anyone given you advice, like any senior congresspeople, about how to get any time for yourself? Because I would imagine that's just a huge adjustment. It's, yes. it's That's a very unnormal piece of life for most people to just literally always be scheduled. Nobody has good advice. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> because there are just so many demands on our time. I should, you know, I'm, I'm being overly dramatic. People say you have to carve it around the edge edges and you have to protect it fiercely, right? That is good advice, which is there will always be another constituent to meet with. There will always be another call to take. There will always be another meeting. It never ends. And so if you don't set clear parameters, the people around you that want you to be successful are always going to be thinking about how will this help her career if she meets with this person? How will this help her career if she's able to speak at this event? And what's often not factored in is if she isn't able to recharge, it's funny that I'm speaking about myself in the third person. <laughs> if I am not able to recharge, then all of those extra meetings aren't necessarily going to give, be giving back to me and my yeah. career. So I have been able to carve out time for myself in the morning. I'm an early riser and I think that helps. Mm -hmm. So I get up and I do exercise and I meditate and um, we'll put an asterisk by meditate. Or we'll get back to that. <laughs> and I do that before I ever go into the office so that I know whatever happens, at least I've had five minutes of quiet and I've gotten some exercise before I go in. Mm. And I made myself find a living arrangement that would be walkable to the Capitol, that would force me to start my day outside. And that's critical to my mental health. I love that awareness. So I'd love to hear a bit about your mental health story. People love this show when they get to look at people like you, who they admire, who've done big things, mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, wait, she feels anxious too? Yes. She feels depressed. So I'd love mm -hmm. to hear your story. Yes. The more I've been open about talking about it here in Vermont as an elected official and as a leader, the more I know it's exactly the right path because I hear from people all the time are grateful that I have shared my, my journey and continue to. Mm -hmm. So I was a very anxious kid, would get sort of the classic stomach aches and headaches before a test or before a big event at school. I started at such a young age, hmm. um, third, fourth grade. Yeah. yeah. And, and so for a long time, I really didn't know that that 
was not how everybody experienced the world. <laughs> I just assumed this is what it is to be human, mm. you know? And it was only much later when I learned that my mom actually had panic attacks when I was growing up. And, mm. and it's interesting to look back at that time and realize as a culture, we didn't have the language to talk about it. Yeah. And it was absolutely taboo. And when I was in high school, things got really bad. I was an overachiever, straight A student, president of the student body, president of my drama club, <laughs> you know, just, you know, voted most humorous, uh, my graduating class. You know, I had a, a lot of friends and a lot of activities that were important to me. But in my senior year, I just, hit such a bottom and started to fail some of my classes. I had gotten into college early and this was really before anyone could Google me, right? So we weren't, I, I'm, I'm in my fifties now. And so I wasn't worried that a college would rescind its acceptance. That wasn't really on my radar screen. It was more just, how am I going to get to the end of the year? Hmm. And really couldn't eat. You know, for me, when I'm hitting a rough patch of anxiety or depression, my appetite is the first to go. Me too. Just, everything tastes like cardboard. No appetite. Yeah, no appetite. And I remember for weeks, just the only thing I could really keep down was bouillon, just plain chicken bouillon. And I got to the point where I just didn't feel comfortable talking to any of my my peers about it. It also coincided with the fact that I was becoming much more clear about my sexuality and did not have role models at all. And in fact, you know, really did not live in a place where this was accepting. There certainly was not a gay straight alliance at my school, like hmm. not at all. Hmm. Like words like lesy, queer, like all of those things were still very much part of the culture of the high school that I went to. And so it did not feel safe to be talking with people about that and not safe talking to people about my mental health struggles. And so I actually took myself to a school counselor, not a guidance counselor, but an actual counselor at school. And I walked in and I shut the door and I said, I'm really struggling. I need to talk to someone. But before I say anything else, I need you to know I'm a happily gay person. I'm not looking for someone to talk me out of that. That wow. is not part of my, yeah. Like, what the heck? How did I even like? How did you know? I don't know. I think about it all the time. It was just like it needed to be said. I wanted her to focus on the anxiety and the depression and that it was not connected to who I was in the world. Yeah. And honestly, I wish I could tell you what that was about. I don't know. But thank goodness I said it. And she saw me in the office there at school. And then she asked me if I would be comfortable with an outside referral, mm -hmm. someone that would see me pro bono until I had the courage to tell my parents. Because mm. we didn't, like, my family did not go to therapy. Like... <laughs> That was not okay. And I didn't know I was going to have that conversation with my parents. But 
I saw this woman. She was fantastic. Just really, really good and really gave me some initial tools to deal with the, the acuteness of the anxiety and depression I was feeling. And then when she said, look, you're working really, really hard. And I think if you could bring your mom into this conversation or your dad, if I could prescribe some medicine to help you with this debilitating anxiety that you have, I think that we can do a lot more work together. And that's what happened eventually. I did tell my mom and it went on our health insurance. But that woman, you know, I would say she saved my life. It was, she just met me where I was at and focused on the things that I wanted to focus on and didn't call into question that my anxiety of depression could be stemming from my sexuality. And I know for some people that's, that is part of what they need to work through, but it wasn't for me. Wow. So you, you had a clear boundary. I'm a happily gay person. This is who I am. My mental health is a separate piece of that. Yes. And that whatever anxiety I feel around my sexuality, it's because society is not accepting. Right. And that there's so much hate and misunderstanding, but that I didn't want to be changed. Mm. I felt solid in who I was. And I thank whatever higher power was looking over me for that, for that strength and that courage, because it was hard enough dealing with the anxiety and the depression at that age. I think the insight around whatever anxiety I had was from society is really important because I often say this, you know, people who are different, people mm -hmm. who are not white men in most institutions and businesses in this country have more anxiety because people do treat yeah. us differently. Yes. And so I always tell people, it's not in your head. Like, you may be yes. feeling anxious. You may be feeling like an imposter, right? There was the famous yes. article, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome, because people treat you like you don't belong. Yes. <laughs> so exactly. it, it's exactly. nuanced. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is nuanced. And, you know, I have always been a voracious reader. And I think that also helped me get through is I was always seeking out heroes in, you know, nonfiction and fiction alike mm -hmm. that I could identify with because I didn't have those mentors in my life. I didn't know any gay people. I, I also didn't have any politicians in my life. Nobody in my family had ever <laughs> run for office. And so it was interesting that I knew at a very young age that I wanted to do that, but I didn't end up running for office until I was in my 40s because I just didn't see a path. So tell us about how you managed anxiety and depression as you got older. Yeah. So I wish I could tell you I handled it really well in college. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I knew that exercise was a big part of helping me with my my anxiety and my depression that needing to either run or get on my bike every day was really, really important to me. And I also, I've been a, an avid hiker for my whole life. Mm. And so those, those things were, were helpful to me. I also tried to self-medicate with alcohol for a long time mm -hmm. and that was not helpful at all. And really 
got to a point in my early 20s, just after I graduated from college, where I actually quit drinking for about 10 years, just to figure out different strategies for myself. Wow. That I I had friends who were in AA and would occasionally go with them to AA and would think about whether that was my issue. Mm-hmm. Like, was I an alcoholic? And came to the conclusion that I wasn't, but that I really needed to take a break from it and figure out those other strategies and not use it as any kind of crutch. And that was really helpful to me. Mm. You realized it wasn't serving you. It was not serving me. That's exactly right. That's what I was going to say. And it was absolutely not serving me. And in my 30s and 40s, I became much more clear that who I was was actually not a flawed human, right? I had this story about myself that my anxiety and depression made me flawed. I was also a terrible sleeper. I've been a terrible sleeper my entire life. And my brain's always going, little squirrel brain. <laughs> I remember talking to my a friend of mine at the gym one day. We were, we were both early risers. We were at the gym. Her name was Martha. I was like, Martha, really trying to figure out like, what's going on with my sleep? And, you know, I've given up caffeine and done all this. I've done that. Nothing seems to happen. I'm still like, you know, lying awake at night. And, you know, she just laughed. She looked at me. She said, Becca, it's not the caffeine. I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, you're an anxious person. It's okay. (laughs) This is who you are. She's like, so how are you going to turn it around and use that time when your mind's going? Like, what are those tools you're going to have? You're going to have a notebook by your bed where you can write down some thoughts that you had, you know, I wrote an op-ed column for years and it was great. I would have all these ideas for columns and I would just, (laughs) you know, write them down. And that frame, twisting that frame of, hey, maybe this isn't that you're damaged or broken. Maybe this is just you and you're learning how to be your best self with this brain and this body. And, And that was just such a huge relief. And I still need to be reminded of that constantly, right? You talked about the imposter, you know, syndrome. For me, it's more about having a saboteur. Mm. And, you know, it's that voice that pops up when you're tired. For me, it's when I'm tired or overworked is when if I make a, a slight mistake, I collapse everything and everything's wrong catastrophizing. I totally catastrophize. (laughs) And I have learned to ask myself, okay, what's the story your saboteur is telling you? And in my case, I have a name for my saboteur. (gasps) What is it? It's Mrs. Cheevely. She is a character from the Oscar Wilde play, An Ideal Husband. And yeah, it's a great, it's a great (laughs) play. So Mrs. Cheevely is always popping up, right? to tell me about my shortcomings. And once I named her, it took away all this power. It's just like, oh, there you are again. Hey, you're back again. You know, Mrs. Cheaply. Yes. I also am, I'm always moving. I, I, I was listening to an interview you gave, and I think you actually said, I never stop moving. Yeah. And my brain never stops. And 
I'm like nodding my head furiously as you're talking. And and I've had so many people tell me just to sort of relax. Yeah, chill why, out, man. <laughs> why can't you just sit down? <laughs> yeah. yeah. My sister and my husband will gang up on me every once in a while and be like, sit down. And and I'm like, I you don't understand. It's not how I'm wired. Like every once yes. in a while I have to go to bed for like four days to catch up. But I think there's a lot of us out there. And when we learn how to channel it, whether yes. it's an op-ed column or running for office or writing yes. or d- whatever it is, we're amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I, and, and do you think that you're, you're becoming an activist and getting into politics was a good outlet for all that energy? Absolutely. It's also, you know, something that, that I think about a lot are, the things that I call like, what's my why, mm-hmm. right? What's my why for running for office? What's my why for talking honestly about, you know, my mental health struggles? My why is that I want to alleviate suffering in all of its forms. And my home base to do that is curiosity, mm. curiosity about myself, curiosity about others. And I love being a curious person. I love that when I go into my umpteenth, you know, mixer (laughs) in the week in DC, I can still find interesting things to talk about with the people that are there. Inevitably, somebody will say something and I'll go home and I'll look up the article or the book or the, you know, a podcast they recommended. And that desire to constantly be thinking and learning is given me an opportunity to connect with my why every single day to alleviate suffering, both in the policy that I'm trying to pass, but also in individual moments that I have with people. And thinking that trust isn't built in grand gestures, it's built in these tiny little moments. And so I always think about as I'm going through my day, how do you build trust with the people around you? Sometimes it's as simple as acknowledging that they need a place to sit and giving them your chair, mm-hmm. getting them a cup of coffee because you know they were late for the meeting and they didn't get there and not thinking about what can that person do for me? Just simply getting curious about who is this person? How can I help relieve their suffering in this moment? And how is this connection going to make me feel better about this day? Well, you you said when we were talking about nature that you really valued being more open and being more compassionate. Yes. Yes. I, I, I think a lot about something I learned from the Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron. She said when she finds herself getting frustrated more angry, right? If she's waiting in line mm. at the store or the plane is delayed, which you know happens to me all the time, she says she goes into this mindset of just like me. She says it to herself while she sits there, just like me. Just like me, that person sitting across from me is really frustrated that this plane is late. Or just like me, that person who's working at the counter is so upset that she has to deliver all the news that the plane is going to be like, and she wants to get home to her family too. And there's something about that 
process, that simple process of looking at people and thinking just like me, that cultivates my compassion, even in moments in which I can feel myself getting anxious and as a defense for my anxiety, angry, you know. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I want to talk about policy in a minute, but but I do want to talk about depression because I, I do feel... Because it's sort of the flip side of a lot of this. And, yeah. and, and you've had experiences with depression too, right? Yes. You know, I have been... A couple different points in my life when I have just felt so dark, almost like there's physically a dark shroud around me. And right now I can keep it at bay for the most part. I use, you know, I have a, an antidepressant mm -hmm. that I take. I want to be clear that because of the form my anxiety takes, I've been able to continue to work, even though there have been times when it has felt physically uncomfortable to do so, I have been able to do it. And I know depression takes many different forms for people. And so I just want to be really clear. This is what has worked for me. And I know that everybody has their own journey. So for me, it's a combination of I take an antidepressant, I make sure I get exercise and fresh air every single day. And I have other tools that I use when I recognize that I am sort of falling down the rabbit hole. You said that one of your tells for anxiety was eating, like stopping eating. Do you have any physical warning signs or emotional warning signs that sort of say, oh gosh, the, the, the dark is coming? Yeah, uh, certainly appetite is there too, and insomnia. When I find that I have some free-floating dread that doesn't seem to be attached to anything in particular, yeah, I'm better at recognizing it now, and my my friends are better about recognizing it in me, and they can say, "Tell me what you ate today. 
<laughs> you know, just like, what have you eaten today? Have you gotten outside? My wife is really good about this. Have you been outside? And before you do anything else, please eat something. Please get outside and move your body. If I go for too many hours, like not even days, too many hours without moving my body, it can sometimes set me up for a cycle of, of depression. And I've also on and off throughout my adult life have been in therapy. Right now, I don't have a therapist, but I do have a coach and mentor that I talk to twice a month for an hour. Mm. And we've worked together for a decade. So she kind of knows all my <laughs> your stuff. All, she knows all my stuff, right? <laughs> Conversations that used to take a f- 45 minutes <laughs> can now be five minutes. She's like, well, let me just reflect something back to you. And I'm like, oh, is it that again? <laughs> She's like, yeah, it's come back again. Right. And usually it's my perfectionism or my you know tendencies towards that or just being so hard on myself. It's so interesting to me always when I talk to leaders who are open they say that people, constituents, employees feel grateful. Yes. But yet among leaders and and even interviewers that I speak with in media, they're so scared of this stuff. Yes. Yes. It's like a curse or 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 they don't want to catch it. <laughs> right. And you've heard yeah. this actually referenced in terms of coverage of Senator Fetterman, where yes. his constituents get it. Because they have experienced either a medical crisis or a mental health crisis. And yet, what is that disconnect about? I think it is still, unfortunately, viewed by some people as a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. And I always say to people whenever they ask me, like, you know, do you aren't you afraid that people are going, like some people are saying, aren't you afraid that some Some people, people. (laughs) some people will see it as a sign of weakness. And I always say the body doesn't stop at the neck. Mm. And if I had struggled with, you know, I'm having hip surgery or I am dealing with my high blood pressure, that it is just a natural part of being human. And as you said, constituents know it, community members know it. I mean, we are in the midst of a, that's a whole other topic for another day. We're in the midst of a terrible mental health crisis among our students. And everywhere I go, I have parents and teachers and school administrators talking to me about what they're seeing and experiencing. And so whenever I bring it up, when I'm back home in my district, people are so grateful. Like we're talking about it. We can't, help people if we don't start talking about it. But I was really surprised the first time I gave a public speech in which I referenced my own mental health journey, another politician in Vermont reached out to me Hmm. and he said, you know, that was really brave. I don't know if it was really smart (laughs) because I think it's going to, I think it's going to hurt your career. I've gotten that on the corporate level. Really? I, I, yeah, I had I had a, an advisor tell me like, stop, don't be so open. You're going to regret it. Mm-hmm. And and that's yeah. So how did you feel? So he he said, I don't know if it's very smart. And and were did you have a moment's regret or did you feel really really like half a moment? <laughs> because again, like I have anxiety, so of course I'm going to be of like, of course, oh, 
no, like this is a disaster, right? So half a second of my heart stopping, getting that red, like flush up the back of my neck, right? And then I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about here. And this is the right path. And people need us to be talking about this. Over half of U.S. counties have no psychiatrist. Yeah. Yeah. Is this something we can impact by legislation? Do we need to pay people more student debt? Like, how, yes. how are you thinking about this as a policymaker? Yes. But yes. we, we have to create a more robust pipeline for sure. And it is greatly impacting our rural areas. Mm. And as you say, is it loan forgiveness? Is it free tuition? Is it helping with moving costs? Like we have to get really creative about this because we have a nation of people who are struggling and they have no professionals to go to to help them. And yes, telehealth has helped, but for some people, they really need to be seeing someone face to face. They need to have that human connection. There's something different that happens when you are in a room with someone together. And I have taken advantage of telehealth at, at various times during the pandemic. And I know that it can be incredibly useful. But for some people that are really struggling, the human connection piece, the dealing with the loneliness piece mm -hmm. is also important here for us to be looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about any legislation that you're working on to support yes. better mental health? Yes. Yeah, so I introduced my first standalone bill a few weeks ago, which was a peer mental health support bill. And one of the things that I learned from traveling around Vermont and visiting high schools was that there was a lot of teens in crisis and a lot of teens who had friends who were in crisis and they felt like they didn't even know the first thing about how to help them. So I have introduced a program, a grant program, so that schools and community organizations can apply for grants to pay for mental first aid training. And so when I was a teacher, when I taught middle school, we'd often teach our students first aid or CPR because they wanted to be, you know, they're middle schoolers. They want to be good citizens. They want these skills. And now what's really needed is mental health supports and that, that mental health first aid to know how to identify particular signs of crisis, how to connect people with others that can help them. And one of the things that I've been really clear on, this is not going to solve our problem. We need more providers at every level. We need more psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, but that's going to take time. And our students are hurting now. And many of them feel overwhelmed with their inability to help themselves or their friends. And so that's one piece of legislation. And today we're also introducing a bipartisan bill that I'm introducing with a Republican congressman who we're both deeply concerned about the long-term impact of social media on our kids and teens. Hmm. But it's going to take a lot of investments at many different levels on this. And we, you know, when I talk to my emergency responders, mm -hmm. the EMS and the, the fires and law enforcement in Vermont, they're also struggling with mental health because they're seeing so much trauma mm. and it's impacting them. 
Addiction. Yes. Yes. Lots of, lots of addiction. And, you know, one of the, one of the first responders that I talked to on the campaign trail, I met with him and and his squad. And then he called me afterwards. He said, I didn't want to say this in front of everybody. He said, but I'm losing my compassion and I'm scared. I'm scared that because of the trauma that I'm seeing regularly and because I don't know how to help, I'm losing my compassion. He said, I don't think I'm the only one. And that, that really stayed with me that we, we have got to get better about acknowledging that this is not some, you know, some secret problem that we can only talk about in the shadows. This is happening in every community, in every congressional district. And I just want really to give people permission to be honest about what's going on for them and their families. And I'm hoping to to shift the energy around this. That's what I was talking about with a mentor the other day. She's like, what you're trying to do is shift the energy around it. And it takes a while to do that, but I'm trying to do my part. What are the words? I, of course, observe corporate mental health initiatives a lot. What are the words that work in a bipartisan setting to get people on board with supporting legislation behind health care that supports mental health or housing that's, you know, things that may otherwise be partisan issues? Yeah, I really appreciate that question a lot. It's something that I've been thinking about, and I don't necessarily have the answers yet, but one of the people I, I greatly admire who's trying to cross lines, and that's really what this is about, Ray, we're trying to cross lines around this issue, is a climate scientist named Catherine Hayhoe. And she is a really interesting person. She's a climate scientist, and she's also an evangelical Christian. And she talks about when you are trying to bring people together around an issue that is contentious, you always have to start with what you have in common apart from the issue itself. And so the way that I have found to talk about this across party lines is starting with family because we do have friends and kids and aunts and uncles and parents who are struggling and to just bring it back to family. I know you want to take care of your family. I know you want to take care of your kids and you don't quite know how to do it. Or maybe you're also struggling and you don't feel like you're your best self right now. And that makes you feel like you're not a great parent. And, you know, we all, again, we all have these saboteurs. And so I have found bringing it back to family is really helpful. And people run for office usually because they love their community. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. We might not agree about what the community needs, but they run because they love their community and they want to help their community. And so bringing it back to that, that we don't agree on everything, but we ran because we want to do right by the people back home. At least I hope most people ran for that reason. (laughs) Let's hope. I mean. Let's hope. Let's hope. I love that. Absolutely about people. Unfortunately, that doesn't always work in corporate America. But if you bring it back to money saved, then. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, that's true. And I think that is often something that I bring up when I talk about when we invest in mental health 
supports at a younger age, you know, you are saving money over the long term. Yes. Yes. On so many levels. And it is, I wish it didn't come down to money, but you're right. That can be a motivating factor for people to get on board for sure. Especially if you're running a city, town, or county level government and you see the impact directly on the ground every single day. A hundred percent. Obviously, you're going to be looking for ways to to support people while also saving money. Mental yeah. illness is the most expensive cost most corporations bear, to be honest, because it's the leading driver of missed work days. So oh, that makes sense. There you go. Yeah. My last question for you. Would you be willing to share, I don't know, a, a practice or a meditation? You must deal even more viscerally than us with a lot of bad news. There's a yes. lot of bad news in this country right now. Yes. How do you push forward and go to that meeting or go to that mixer or keep hope in the process when the news gets so bad? Yeah. So I have a couple things that I do regularly that help me to stay grounded in the work, even when it's really, really hard. And one thing is I find joy everywhere. And so I sometimes make my staff a little bit, uh, well, I think they secretly like it. So, um, (laughs) I, I sing a lot Hmm. all the time. I sing and hum and have sort of an internal beat going and I do it on the elevator and I do it while we're walking. And I even have a routine that I do with some of the Capitol Police who guard one of the buildings that my committee hearings are in. (laughs) They see me coming and they all stop what they're doing and they look at me and they nod their heads and they know I'm going to sing to them. And so I sing them a few lines of a song and (laughs) by the end of it, they are smiling. I am smiling and it just shifts me out of that dark place. I mean, I... I serve on the oversight committee. It is one of the most dysfunctional committees right now with some of the most extreme members of Congress. So I stop and talk to that group of police officers, men and women who are, you know, protecting us. I sing to them and then I am ready to go in to do battle with, (laughs) with disinformation and misinformation. So I do that. Regularly. We have five minute dance breaks in my office. (laughs) I come back, I say, guys, everybody in, everybody in my office. And uh, we turn on music and we dance for five minutes. I sometimes when I'm really, really feeling down, I will leave my office. I walk across the street to the Capitol building. I take my heels off and I walk in the grass with my bare feet because I actually need to feel the ground beneath my feet and remind myself there are people who have sent me here because they can't be here. So I got to do whatever I can to ground myself in that reality, find the joy where I can, and always remember, for me, it's eventually the sun is going to swallow up our planet anyway. (laughs) 
<laughs> so <laughs> it's my way of saying whatever it is that I am freaking out about, I need to let it go. I need to let it go in this moment so that I can find strength again and do work on behalf of my constituents. And, and there are other things I do. I do box breathing. Mm-hmm. You know? Love box breathing. Yep. Sometimes I do tapping. Mm-hmm. If I'm in my office, I close the door and do tapping for a few minutes. And I also have a guitar in my office and I will grab my guitar, play a few tunes to myself, shift my energy, you know, and, and remind myself that there is joy in the music. There is always joy in laughter. And I will talk to anyone and anybody about anything. And that helps me get through my day. Like, oh, those look like really good French fries you got. Where'd you get them from? Or, whoa, you really went bold with that jacket today. I'm loving that. It's matching your socks. Or, hey, I don't recognize you, but I love your dog. Like, are you in this building? Can I go see your dog? And the human connection gets me through all the time. All the time. What I love about that is every single thing you mentioned is evidence-based. So it's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Becca, thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm a, I'm a longtime listener, <laughs> and I'm just delighted that you wanted to talk to me. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.